Get the brain juices flowing. Here's your warm-up question for the morning. And this is just for people who are sort of, uh, you know, in. They've been around church for a while. Uh, and uh, if you're around church for a while, you've probably heard of this thing called the Bible or Scripture. This is a book that we use. Have any of you studied it? A few. All right. You love it. Why do you trust the Bible? I'm going to give you eight seconds to think about it. Why, why do you trust it? It's the truth. Self-evident. Why do you trust the Bible? Go, tell me. I'm sorry? Archaeology. This comes from this comes from a scientist over here. He's like, yeah, I'm just I'm gonna I'm just gonna go to the data. I'm gonna go to the evidence. There was one over here, I missed it. I'm sorry. What was it? I'm sorry? Oh, he beat you? We have two archaeologists in the house. Yeah. Historical. Historical, the, the stories carry weight. They have accounts. It happened. Robin? It's been confirmed by practice in my life. So empirically, it's experimentally, if you uh, do the sort of things that it encourages you, to, encourages you to do, it produces the sort of fruit that it says it will. Something along those lines. Yeah, Derek? After struggling with truth, you did finally make a decision as well. Yeah, so there was also a deciding factor in, in trusting. There was a deciding factor in trusting, right? So you catch that? That's, that's a subtle uh, sort of answer. It's like, well, I trust it, but it was a conscientious process, uh, which is interesting, right? Not because somebody spoon-fed it to you, yeah? Uh, which is a significant answer. There's a hand back here. Uh, He said there's, there's like 26,000 uh, ancient manuscripts all consistent with one another of, uh, of the Bible. In other words, uh, it's not an ancient document that we're um, weaving together through scraps, right? I don't know if it's quite 26,000, but uh, over 20. Yeah, right. It disrupts you more than anything you've ever... So it, it feels like a difference maker, dang it. And yeah, that's interesting. You got another one, Kent. Fulfilled prophecies, it predictively accurate. Yeah, you guys are great. You asked me. Yep. The way that the Holy Spirit stirs you when I'm in. The way the Holy Spirit stirs you when you're in it. So it's a great foil for relationship with the living God, right? It's not alone. So you don't expect it to stand alone. It works. You guys have great answers. This is a very sophisticated crew. Just turn to the people around you and be like, oh, yeah, this place is Christian. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, people. Um, well, this is a, self, a self-selected crew. Uh, one would expect that people that go to a church on Sunday morning would probably... Uh, respect the, the scriptures uh, more than most. I've noticed uh, in, in the course of my life, which, you know, I don't know, it's a, a, something like 90 years now, I don't know, um, it's been a long time, um, that uh, public attitudes toward the Bible have really changed. I think like most things like that, it started at universities, uh, mostly during the 80s. Um, but um, 
people uh, are quite dismissive of, of Scripture. Uh, they treat it... There's a lot of straw man arguments where the Bible is concerned, right? They say, oh, you Christians believe this about the Bible, and obviously it's not that, and, but maybe they're mischaracterizing Christian attitudes toward this thing that, that we call uh, Scripture. But it's been important, right, in, in the course of Christian history, in the course of the development of the Jesus movement, of, uh, of the tradition of following Jesus that so many of us here are a part of. Um, my impression is that people just don't respect the good book um, like they used to uh, generally. It used to be, I can just barely remember this when I was young, uh, it used to be that even if you were not a follower of Jesus, there was sort of this respect uh, for the book because it had some good stuff in it. Now I think people are much more likely to say, oh, it's ridiculous kind of dismiss it out of hand. And when during this sermon series uh, that I'm calling There is a God and His Ways Are Smart, and the reason I'm doing this sermon series is because I've noticed, particularly over the last few years, that just hundreds of Christians have been taken out of faith, just soul-killed. Church attendance has gone way, way down in our country. And I think it has to do mostly with attitudinal peer pressure, not because there have been great arguments against Christianity, but because it's been popular to criticize and dismiss it and mock it. Um, and the Bible is one of those things that people really aggressively mock. I just don't think they understand it very well. And there are really, really good reasons to respect it. I'll give you one reason that I think about a lot even if you were convinced that there is no God, you should really respect the Bible. Here's why. Religions on this planet exist in a highly competitive environment, right? Uh, different cultures have different truth systems, different religions. And, uh, and in that you know, competitive environment, only the fittest religions survive, basically. And they all have to choose different strategies in order to survive. Right? So, uh, so Islam's strategy to survive, uh, it's a rather recent religion, is uh, force and totalitarianism. Like you're not allowed to disagree you know, in, in, a, in a Muslim culture. It's very top-down forceful. So you have to be quite brave, actually. Uh, contrary to... I don't know, armchair history, Christianity has never really been that. Um, it gets criticized and revolutionized even from its own people. And a lot of this has been built around uh, this book. For some reason, in the highly competitive uh, environment of, of religious systems, uh, this has won, right? So if this were a species, this is the species that has dominated the other species. There is no other religious book like this. In fact, Christians' relationships with their book is unique. Uh, uh, Muslims don't really study the Quran. Have you ever read the Quran? It's, it's not really meant to be studied. It's kind of circular and, and a little bit nonsensical, and this is a real problem in Islamic scholarship. They'll tell you that, well, it's not meant to be read in any language other than Arabic. Arabic. And there are all these Muslim scholars that have that, whose job is really to kind of paste over the inconsistencies and stuff like that. Hinduism has stories, but not really a book. Like mostly if you're a Hindu, you follow rituals. That's what keeps you together. Um, 
And uh, Buddha had some teachings, but, you know, you know not really a book-based, uh, a scripture-based um, truth system uh, either. There's nothing else like this. Why did it win? And the fact that it won and that it's at least 1,500 years old tells you that it must do some good for some people, right? It's a strategy that has worked for humanity, and therefore we have kept it around. It has survived all of these challenges, so empirically experimental. So you should respect it just on that basis. You know, there is wisdom in here that bubbles up to us from time immemorial, uh, and we've decided to codify it and keep it. Nobody forces it on you, and yet we have maintained it. It must work. Are you following me? Even if you don't believe in God, uh, you should probably respect it for that reason. Oh, but there's so much more. And uh, I'd just like to talk about it today. You know, we'll start with a very famous verse um, one of the authors of the New Testament says about Scripture. I bet a lot of you have memorized this verse if you were in open Bible uh, churches uh, when you were a kid. From uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'll read verses 14 through 17. Uh, in the NIV, it goes like this. But as for you, this is Paul talking to his young ministry protege, Timothy. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, uh, because you know from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, here he would be talking about the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I always like to point out that that word that gets translated salvation in Greek means something like restoration. So Paul is saying, uh, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for restoration through faith in Christ Jesus. It unleashes all the good stuff, in other words. All Scripture is God-breathed. Uh, an English translation might be God-inspired. It's the same exact word. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's an equipping document. In other words, what Paul, the, the reason that Paul recommends Scripture to us is because it's useful. It's useful. It should do good stuff for you. And the longer you walk with it, as he was telling Timothy, uh, the more useful it's going to be to you. So that can be tested. And as I say, history itself testifies to the usefulness of Scripture. Otherwise, it would not have won, right? It would not have been maintained through the centuries. Um, it's almost as if God had something to do with it. Um, there are attacks on Scripture these days. There's a lot of revisionist scholarship. There's these so-called Gnostic scholars, you know, Gnosticism. Gnosticism literally means knowing or secret knowing. Um, they say that the books in the Bible were selected by a conspiracy of Christian leaders on the early 4th century to uh, eliminate all the teachings they didn't like and only keep the ones that were controlling and oppressive. That's a very popular philosophy on university campuses these days. Um, but uh, I don't think that explains why it survived and why it is useful. Basically, there are two views of the Bible. And I think it's important uh, for us to understand this uh, and to be ready with an answer. 
um, two basic views of the Bible. Uh, one view is that the Bible was dictated to people by God himself. So it's as if the people who wrote the books of the Bible were taking dictation from God. And there are some Christians that say this is true. That's what, that's what I mean. Uh, so God breathed means God dictated. And if that's your view, the problem is that every word has to be accurate and correct. And there can be no little inconsistencies in everything because God doesn't make mistakes. God said it, I believe it. Right? Which sounds really virtuous. Um, uh, and there's some... Uh, there's some reasons that church leaders through the tumult of the centuries have kind of chosen this view that every word dictated by God, every single word, uh, perfect and holy in every sense. Uh, until quite recently, actually, the Catholic Church would only circulate the scriptures in Latin. And scholars call this Latinate authority. You weren't even allowed to read uh, the Bible because you didn't know Latin. Only the priests could do it because scriptures were holy and a thing of God. And you had to accept the scriptural understanding that they gave you. So there was a little church control involved there. Um, there was a, a reformation. Maybe you heard of it. Uh, Protestant reformation. Uh, Martin Luther, those guys, 16th century. And one of their... Um, uh, cries was solo scriptura, like actually everybody needs to read the Bible uh, for themselves. They published it in popular language, German was the first one, and then uh, there was no mediation between you and God. Read the stories and see what you think, which is how it was in the early days, actually. So this was a restoration more than it was a reformation. Um, but the emphasis was on scripture, right? Like, uh, there can be no miracles, only scripture. Because if you do a miracle, you might think that you're an authority. And only, only the Bible can be authority. So that was a controversy in the church uh, uh, for a while. But the biggest problem with the every word is perfect, um, breathed from God view of, of the Bible, is that there are tiny little inconsistencies in scripture. Uh, for instance, in Matthew and Mark, there's one angel at the tomb of Jesus on Resurrection Day. But in Luke and John, there are two angels. I've actually debated Muslim scholars in public settings who want to argue that this is proof that Christianity is bunk. Um, I'll talk about why it's actually quite the opposite. Um, and inconsistencies in the scripture, like one of my favorite chapters of, uh, of all of the Gospels is John chapter 8. And it's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Right? They drag this adulteress before Jesus. And basically they challenge Jesus to kill her because adultery is a sin uh, that's uh, subject to stoning. And then Jesus, he plays it very cool. He shows grace. The woman gets away. Her life gets restored. So it's a great story. The problem is it wasn't in the original manuscripts of John. Um, and it's in a different style of Greek than the rest of John, etc., etc. Uh, what scholars think is that originally it was in the Gospel of Luke, uh, because it's his style, his Greek, and stuff like that. Uh, but when, um, when Luke first came out, the Christians were so offended by the story that they edited it out, because it kind of made it sound like adultery was okay, Grace is always the most challenging thing about Christianity, right? 
And so they took it out for a while. And then they realized, actually, grace is exactly what Christianity is about. So they had to stick it back in. But by then, Luke had become really popular. It was already in circulation. So they couldn't stick it back in Luke. They put it instead in this new gospel that had just been written called John. And that's why we have it. Um, And so is that godly perfection? Or is that a bunch of guys just trying to figure out how to do it right? You know, there's a human aspect to it. Um, Now, I think that only when you say that the Bible is human do you realize how godly it is. It's the humanity, it's the imperfection of Scripture that convinces me that only God could have engineered it. What I mean by that is this. It's the fact that the Bible is so human that it's obviously inspired by God. The convincing thing about Scripture is that despite being written by really fallible human beings over a span of at least 15 centuries and probably more like 30, across numerous cultures and different language groups, in spite of all of that, the Bible fits together perfectly and it tells this surprising and beautiful story that no one could have seen coming at the beginning of the authorship, but that perfectly completes itself at the end of the authorship. Who could engineer a book like this across 15 centuries, numerous cultures and languages, and have it hang together in such a sophisticated, surprising, and perfect manner? That's what we have in Scripture. And that's the thing that the world should probably appreciate. I'll give you five reasons uh, that I think um, sort of buttress uh, this idea that the Bible hangs together perfectly and that its story is surprising and fulfilling in a way that nobody, no human could have engineered. And some of these reasons you guys have already uh, stated. Uh, Number one, it's a historically reliable document. It's the most solidly, evidentiarily backed ancient document we have in human history, and it's not even close. Uh, It's not even close. Like you, maybe, I don't know what they teach in school these days, but it used to be that they would teach you like Greek tragedies and Greek history and Roman literature and stuff like that. We have something like somewhere between four and eight manuscripts of the Homeric epics, you know, like the Iliad. They're making movies about that now. Uh, more than one, and I think there's a Netflix series on Troy, right, which is basically Homer's story of the Iliad, although I think they've, they're not telling it true to Homer. Um, any, any manuscript that you think of as an ancient manuscript, there'll be like maybe, maybe, maybe a half dozen uh, impartial manuscripts that come down to us through history, and we keep them in museums, uh, and Evan uh, spoke to this. Um, There are thousands of near-original manuscripts of of Christian documents, and they're all consistent with one another. That tells you that there was no no drift. Um, The Old Testament, uh, most famously, was confirmed uh, in a place called Qumran um, in the Middle East uh, with a collection of ancient scrolls called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you guys heard about this? You've probably heard the term and might not know what it is, Uh, but uh, this Basically, this little boy was out playing in the caves in the countryside, and he found some ancient urns. He accidentally broke one. Well, I think he threw a rock at it, is the story. And inside, he found these incredibly ancient documents. 
basically, they were, it was a complete set of the Old Testament minus the book of Esther that date uh, to somewhere around 150 B.C. And he discovered these documents in, in uh, 1947, I think it was. Um, and so people had said, all oh, the Old Testament is just, the Old Testament that we have today is just a facsimile of some stories that existed centuries ago. It's not reliable. And basically the Dead Sea Scrolls show that they're in fact exactly the same as they were in ancient times. Um, and, uh, uh, but the New Testament is the one that's amazing. There are over 5,800 near original manuscripts in Greek. There are about 10,000 uh, early copies of the Greek manuscripts in Latin, about 9,300 copies of near original ancient uh, versions of the New Testament books in other ancient language, you know, like Egyptian and stuff like that. The oldest fragments that we have of the Gospels date to about 100 AD, which is very, very soon after Jesus died, and, and uh, John the Apostle uh, might actually have still been alive uh, at the time. Um, and these books were all canonized, which is to say they were collected in an official basket uh, in 325 AD in a place called Nicaea. Um, so fairly soon after uh, the Bible books was, was written, they were trying to keep them pure, to protect them from these things called the Gnostic Gospels, false Gospels that other people were writing because Christianity was becoming popular. And so there are all these cultic spin-offs. Like, we have all these cultic spin-offs today in Christianity. Like, they're not quite Christian, but they're sort of Christian. Um, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses are an example that everybody knows. Um, so super historically reliable. Number two, can't say they're predictively accurate. Um, we talked last week about how uh, Jesus, in these original documents that we have from the first century A.D., um, predicted that his movement would succeed and spread around the whole planet, which was a ridiculous prediction for this guy to make because he had a handful of followers in uh, a backwoods country, in a backwood corner of the Roman Empire. Not only did he predict that Christianity would go around the world, but he predicted how it would happen. He said it would be carried forth mostly by nameless, faceless people, that there would be, you know, power involved and there'd be persecution like he all these everything he said turned out to be exactly true and now christianity is you know the most successful faith system that the planet has ever known the fact that he predicted it that we had it written down and it came true is mind-blowing and people should totally respect that even non-believers should totally respect that because like what are the odds right uh what are the odds but there are other predictions, like the most predicted event in Scripture was the birth of Christ. My favorite prediction of that comes from Daniel chapter 9. I don't have time to go through it this morning. But basically, Daniel was a Jewish guy that was living in Babylon because Israel had been invaded. He got deported, exiled. Uh, he served in the king's courts in this foreign country. But God gave him prophecies that he wrote down meticulously. Uh, because he was a bureaucrat, he was a scribe, he kept records. In Daniel 9, there's this famous prophecy called the prophecy of the 70 weeks, or the 77s, uh, and it has to do uh, uh, a week. Uh, a one unit would, would correspond to a year uh, in symbolic language. Um, basically, it's a prophecy about how 
when the Messiah would come and the fact that shortly after he came, he would be killed uh, and then rise again. But the interesting thing about this prophecy is that his math dates it. He has 70 weeks, 70, 70 times 7, and you multiply it by a Hebrew year of 300 days, you get something like 173,880 days. I've gone through this before uh, at church. It's kind of fun to do the math. But then you count from the day that Daniel gave the prediction. Actually, he dated it. He said from this kingly order till the time the Messiah comes is going to be 173,880 days. If you do the math, it works out to a Passover week around A.D. 2, right, which is kind of exactly uh, when Jesus was around Jerusalem and coming into Jerusalem and being hailed as the Messiah. It is an uncannily accurate prophecy made over five, well, almost 500 years before Christ. And it's like you can't sneeze at stuff like that. You know, it's like that, it's, this is an impressive book. And it's like, do you really know what you have here? You know, I feel like saying to a lot of people. Uh, number three, uh, the testimonies that we have in here are demonstrably honest. It's a book of people writing down stories that, at the very least, they thought were true. Right? Uh, it's written in such a way that you know that the people giving the accounts were trying as hard as they could to be honest with you. And there's evidence for that, and I'll tell you what I mean. Number one, um, particularly the New Testament, the Gospels, are written in a fashion that is very journalistic. It's very modern. So if you read, say, the Gospel of Mark, and then you read anything else written in the first century AD, and you realize that the style is completely distinct in Mark. Have you ever read, like... Um, the Sumerian epics, like the Epic of Gilgamesh and stuff like that? No? <laughs> there are two guys that appealed to archaeology. You've read the Epic of Gilgamesh, am I right? Oh, I'm so ashamed of you, Stephen. This is a, it's a story from which people say we took the story of Noah's Ark. Actually, I think it's the other way around. I think the story of Noah's Ark was unbelievably ancient, and lots of different cultures have their version of it. But anyway, if you read it, it it's lyrical. It's fantastical. You know, it, 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 it sounds like a myth, right? Even though I think there's a lot of truth in it. Uh, the Gospels are entirely different. They, they don't sound mythological at all. There's nothing fantastical about the language. It's very dry. It's very straightforward. It's, it's, it's the first example of journalism in human history. It's people saying, this is exactly how it happened. This is a first-hand testimony witness account. Um, you know, it's like the Gospels sort of invented journalism. Um, so it strikes you as odd. If you're used to reading ancient texts, the Gospels strike you as really, really uh, odd. Um, plus, in the testimonies written down, as I mentioned earlier, there are these small inconsistencies. Like Mark and Matthew say, there was one angel by the tomb of Jesus on Resurrection Day. And Luke and John says there were two angels. And there are other little Manini inconsistencies like that. What does that tell you, actually? 
I mean, these aren't show-stopping inconsistencies, but they exist. What does it tell you? They read like guys who were trying to remember all the details a few years after the fact, and they had slight variations. And so it tells you that they did not concoct a story, right? That they're actually trying to remember. So it testifies to the soundness of their witness. Are you following me? There is no other document like that. So that's really interesting. Um, plus, the gospel stories contain stories about all the guys that are giving the witnesses, like, you know, Peter, James, John, the disciples. All that. And they look like idiots in about 75% of the stories. Am I right? So if you were concocting stories in order to support your role as a leader in a new faith movement, would you concoct a bunch of stories that made you look pathetic? No, you wouldn't do it today, and they certainly would not have done it back then uh, because it was completely out of culture and out of style back then. Um, so that tells you that they were trying to be honest. And there, there are you know, pathetic elements to the gospel stories. Like it, The gospel stories tell you that Jesus and the boys, when they were traveling around, were largely supported by rich women, which in that culture would have been incredibly humiliating for men. But they shared honestly. They would not have done that if they wanted to impress you culturally and get you to follow them. There's no way they faked it. There's no way that they faked it. This is not the kind of story that you would fake. And then finally, the story of the Bible is the thing that really testifies to its own legitimacy. Uh, it is a narrative from Genesis to Revelation. It's a narrative that is inexplicably coherent across millennia um, in ways that nobody could have planned and that most of the participants that you read about would not have liked. Would not have liked. For instance, uh, in the Old Testament, we read all over the place um, that... God had chosen uh, the Israelites in order to make them a light unto the Gentiles, a, a, a light unto the nations, said to Abraham, but a light unto the Gentiles, it says in the prophet Isaiah. In other words, God told Israel from the very beginning that what he was doing with them was really supposed to bless every people group on planet Earth. Now, that was just an unusual thing to say to anyone period back then, because the world culture was much, much different back then. Like, if you were a tribe of people, you were just trying to keep yourself safe from all of the other tribes of people, right? And so for God to say to them, no, you're going to serve every tribe on earth because of what I'm doing with you, that, that just didn't fly uh, with their culture uh, back then. But it gets repeated often. I mentioned, you know, the Genesis Abrahamic account. You can read about it in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49. God is always reminding them along the way. Oh, just so you know, the ultimate plan is that you take this global. And then uh, they never understood it for like 1,500 years, right? They, they never really got it. They never really tried to bless the nations around them, often because the nations around them were trying to exterminate them. So, you know, no judgment. But then we get to the book of Acts. Uh, in the New Testament, it's book number five. And it's what happens right after Jesus ascends to heaven and, and the guys, the disciples, the apostles, 
are now leading the movement by themselves. And the book of Acts is basically a story about how the Jewish apostles learned that the Holy Spirit wanted to take the gospel to the Gentiles, right? Like Acts chapter 10, where God orders Peter to go uh, to the home of Cornelius, who was a Roman guy, a Gentile, and preach the gospel to them. And the Holy Spirit falls on the crowd and fills them with power and spiritual gifts. And Peter's like, well, I guess it's okay to baptize Gentiles, but he did it against his will. And then he takes the report back to the other Christian leaders in Jerusalem, and they scold him for it. They said, Peter, you idiot, they were Romans. You don't baptize Romans. And then Peter says to them, well, the Holy Spirit fell on them and gave them all these spiritual gifts, tongues, and prophecy. So what was I supposed to do? And they said, oh, okay, well, I guess Gentiles get in. In other words, they didn't understand it. They dragged their feet through it. When Paul later took the gospel intentionally to all of these Gentile nations, to Greece and to Turkey, they hated him for it, right? There was zero incentive, and yet they all did what needed to be done to fulfill the prophecies that were 1,500 years old. They didn't want the story to hang together, but, but they did it anyway, which is just an extraordinary narrative, don't you think? Right? It just tells you that God was in control of the whole thing. My favorite example of this, and we'll end with this, has to do with what I call the original problem. And this is the most beautiful aspect of the arcing Bible narrative, in my opinion. You know the story of the Garden of Eden and the fall of humankind. We sinned and you know, ate some fruit and it didn't go well. We disobeyed God. All right. So the Garden of Eden story is the oldest story that humans have about themselves. Basically, I understand the Bible as a document about humanity. Right? It's not a document about a religious movement. It's a document about humanity. It's us trying to remember who we are. And Eden is the prime example of that. Like, we knew that the world was created. Somehow that stuck in our collective psyche. We knew that we used to have a close relationship with God and something went wrong. And we were trying to tell ourselves that story down through the millennia. I think tens of thousands of years, actually, in my opinion. Um, and we're trying to warn, in the, in the Garden of Eden, we're trying to warn all human generations of what goes wrong why we keep screwing up. And essentially it's this. The Garden of Eden story tells, tells us that we believed in God, but we didn't trust that God was good for us. We didn't trust his character, right? That was the problem. Um, and the serpent, the deceiver, the deception, however you want to understand it, comes to us and says, the reason God doesn't want you to eat the fruit, the reason God wants you to do what he says is because he's an oppressor. He knows that when you eat the fruit, you will become powerful like he is. And he doesn't want you to be powerful like he is. He doesn't want you to be like him. It's like saying, your parents don't want you to grow up and be like they are. They want to keep you young, vulnerable, and under their thumb. The original lie, the original deception was, God is just out to lord it over you forever. God is a tyrant. That was the original deception. 
tens of thousands of years later, depending on how you read it, Jesus comes. And he's a manifestation of God on earth. Right? He puts on flesh. He, he subjects himself to all the suffering that we are subjected to. And then he dies on the cross, stripped naked, humiliated, beaten, hanging there right, for all the world to see. And, and the book says, that's God. What that is, is a direct antidote to the original deception. The original deception was, God just wants to be more powerful than you and lord it over you. And Jesus, hanging there humiliated and beaten on the cross, says, if that's God, he is not interested in lording it over anybody. And it's the perfect response to the original lie. But the original lie happened thousands of years earlier. And then you think about everything in the Bible that happened between there and here, and you realize that's a beautiful telling of a story that directly solves the problem. Are you following me? How could that possibly have been fake? There is no, no man, no woman, that could have just been sitting in a study, writing on parchment, you know, 2,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, and invented how that would work out, and known that it would spread around the world like that. You cannot possibly fake the Bible. All to say, do you really know what you have in that book? Do you really know why we trust it? It is extraordinary beyond human understanding. Well, not beyond human understanding, beyond human engineering. There is a reason that it's the only book like it in all of human history. There's a reason that it has won in the competitive environment of truth systems. Take all of that, set it over here, and just get back to the original point, which was, that's why it's useful. It's useful for us, right? And so take all of that as a given and just ask yourself, well, how do I use this in my life? And I went through all of that spiel this morning <laughs> just to fortify you so that you don't get taken out by people who mock scripture but to fortify you also in the sense that you can use it really well. Like, you, you can trust the thing that it says. You know, it will be fruitful for you. It will protect you. It will protect your family. It will prosper people through generations, uh, as it definitely has. I can say more and more about that. Um, but, you know, you can use it. You can trust it. If the scriptures are legitimate, we should probably put them into practice. We should probably imitate the stories that we read. We should probably try to understand uh, the, the rules that God gave us and, and understand them deeply and expansively. So here's my tip. I want to make it very practical for you because it's a thick book, right? It's hard uh, to understand it all. I've spent my lifetime going through it. And I know a lot of people who have spent their lifetime studying scripture and frankly, they don't understand it well at all because they've gotten fascinated by the trees and forgotten the forest. Nobody, well, few people understand the whole arc of it well. They can tell you what the Bible says but not necessarily what it means. And if they don't know what it means, then they don't use it really well. And I want us at Blue Water to kind of understand what it means so that we use it really well. Because faith isn't knowing, faith is trying, right? 
So here's my tip for understanding the Bible. If you don't want to be a professional professional Bible scholar, uh, reader of Hebrew and Greek and all of that stuff, if you just kind of want to get to the point, my tip for you would be to get to know one book of the Bible really well. One book. That's all. And I think that's within everybody's capability. Get to know one book uh, really well. Um, If I had to choose a book, a single book in all of the Bible to get to know well, I would pick, what am I going to say? Gospel of Mark. Uh, Because it's a gospel, and they're kind of at the heart of everything in this beautiful arcing story that hangs together inexplicably well. It's the first gospel written, and it's short, man. And the language is really, really simple. It was written in pidgin Greek, you know, so it sounded very much like, you know, local pigeon, except in Greek, just really down to earth, 16 chapters, and like, it's a, you could spend your life in the Gospel of Mark and be fine, right? It has enough. It has enough. Now, what happens if you get to know one book well, you kind of get to know the books that it refers to and stuff, so it amplifies a little bit, but I would far rather you know that one book well than know a little bit about dozens of books in the Bible. How many books in the Bible? 66. 66. Good. Somebody went to Sunday school. Uh, If you don't like the Gospel of Mark, I might suggest the book of Acts, which is a history of the early church. It's sort of our history and one that we try to emulate. Uh, If you want to go Old Testament, I would go with the book of Genesis, which I could spend a lifetime. I could spend a lifetime in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, Foundational stories that humanity is trying to remind itself of. But just get to know a story well and be assured it's really legitimate, mind-bogglingly legitimate. You don't have to be rattled. You don't have to be worried. It is unlike any document ever. If I were a non-believer, I would believe in God by virtue of the scriptures themselves. I wouldn't need anything else. It's that impressive. It's that impressive. So take a bite of it. Pick a book and use it. That's all I have to say today. Do not be fooled.